Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. My revolution just bury our minds instead of freeing them. Crypting Evil Corpse data was meant to empower us. Instead, it left us powerless, scaring us into even more submission. Five Nine didn't get rid of the invisible hand, it turned it into a fist that punched us in the dick. And like a botnet, the fear I created is spreading so fast, it's practically airborne. It swallowed us whole, digested us, and now we're stuck in its asshole, waiting to be dumped out. And while we're here, they're having their way with us. They packaged a fight in the product, turned our descent to intellectual property, televising a revolution with commercial breaks. They backdoored into our minds and robbed our truth, refurbished the facts, then marked up the price. This is what they do. This is what they're good at. This is their greatest trick. Lobotomizing us into their virtual reality horror show. And this all started because I tried to hide from society. Remember? Fuck society. Yeah. Well, I fuck society, all right. I reset it to zero. And if I don't do anything about it, it'll continue to grow in this malignant way. And that's what I'm afraid of the most. This dark future that I set into motion. Who knows what could come from this? What if instead of fighting back, we cave, give away our privacy for security, exchange dignity for safety, trade in revolution for repression? What if we choose weakness over strength? They'll even have us build our own prison. This is what they wanted all along, for us to buy in on our worst selves. And I just made it easier for them. I didn't start a revolution. I just made us docile enough for their slaughtering. And I can stand here and blame Evil Corp and every other conglomerate out there for taking advantage of us. Blame the FBI, NSA, CIA for letting them get away with this. Blame all the world's leaders for aiding and abetting them. Blame Adam Smith for inventing modern day capitalism in the first fucking place. Blame money for dividing us. Blame us for letting it. But none of that's true. The truth is, I'm the one to blame. Whoa, Nelly! How about that clip from Mr. Robot? A Gnostic themed series that has predicted so much about our collapsing society in 2023. So much. As Eric Hoffer said, every great cause begins as a movement, becomes a business, and eventually degenerates into a racket. And as I say, there are no exceptions, even for anarchist hackers. Anthony DeMello did say that when you fight or run away from something, you give it more power. Philip K. Dick said that to fight the empire is to be infected by its derangement. Fight not monsters, lest you become a monster, Nietzsche stressed. What was done to me created a basic principle of the universe that every action will create an equal and opposing reaction. Is that how you see it? Like an equation? What was done to me was monstrous. And they created a monster. 
And here we are in this Age of Hermes, Philip K. Dick world and Gnostic times. How's the revolution working out for ya? How's that good fight? Guess what? That edgy podcast or cool Twitter poster or banger political YouTuber is just part of the Archon machinery now. Go listen to Tim Pool, The Young Turks, NPR, or whatever the fuck. It doesn't matter. They're all playing for the same satanic team that feeds off your louche and strengthens the empire that never ended. Keep thinking your donations, online arguments, or slacktivism is making a difference. It's all just a Punch and Judy show with the puppets exchanging bats to proffer the illusion of a noble battle. Vote Democrat or vote Republican. The world is changing now that my side has the bat. As Michael Malice said, people will say with a straight face that having one choice for dear leader is tyranny, but having two is freedom. And they haven't given us any other options outside the occasional purely symbolic participatory act of voting. You want the puppet on the right or the puppet on the left? And hey, it used to be communists and capitalists fighting on the streets. Then it changed to Antifa and Proud Boys. Now it's uh, NRA Christians and trans people or whatever. And high above, the Archons and their catamites in the establishment count their money while the poor count their blessings. The revolution will not be televised because it happens inside of you. Simple as that. As Ursula Le Guin said, you cannot buy the revolution. You cannot make the revolution. You can only be the revolution. It is in your spirit, or it is nowhere. Paint the sky with rainbows. But here's the thing. The sheeple aren't going anywhere. They like my world. They don't want this sentimentality. They don't want freedom or empowerment. They want to be controlled. They crave the comfort of certainty. It's a movement and a meditation, as the Gospel of Thomas says. An inner alchemical transformation that disengages you from the Ouroboros and activates your indwelling trickster. Then you're no longer playing the game of Saturn and can see the whole of the moon. This is the way, Mandalorian, and there is no other way. Neo, sooner or later you're going to realize, just as I did, there's a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. Or don't listen to me. Turn off Aeon Bide and continue to witness millions of psyches crack in despair, the middle class vanish, and nature being raped. Continue watching Ukrainian, Russian, and Muslim boys being pulverized by the military industrial complex. As Beck sang, Things are going to change. I just know it. I'm a loser, baby. I wish that I could bake a cake made out of rainbows and smiles and we'd all eat it and be happy. She doesn't even go here. Do you even go to this school? No, 
I just have a lot of feelings. Or instead, take the greatest and most heroic journey of your life and go within for the supremacy of self-knowledge. Finding out that you have an original purpose and a grand destiny. That's what we do here at Aeon Bite, and welcome to the desert of the real. I am Miguel Connor, always your pompadus of Gnosis. A high-powered mutant of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live, and too rare to die. We continue going inward. Part of this is deprogramming our egos, which always includes understanding, as Alan Moore said, that all history is fiction. We must learn history and then peel back its skin of propaganda for a more authentic history. Whoa. One of the most critical annals is the secret history of the Gnostics and how it was repressed. This repression has fed part of the collapse of humanity underway now, as it rejects logos and wisdom, gnosis and theurgy. Censorship is American as apple pie, so shut up! Someone unmatched in seeing beyond conventional history is John Michael Greer. He honors the virtual Alexandria to discuss his latest book, The Ceremony of the Grail, Ancient Mysteries, Gnostic Heresies, and the Lost Rituals of Freemasonry. By Odin's Dingleberries, get ready to see the secret history of the Gnostics in a way that awakens your divine spark like never before. Heck and heckity, John even provides the secret rituals once used by the ancient mystics that can heal the land and heal our collective consciousness. As a bonus for all subs, beyond the full show, I'll include a venerable interview with Mark Amaru Pinkham. He discussed similar themes like the Knights Templar, the Holy Grail, and Orthodoxy's hiding of ancient mysteries. Don't miss it. All I've ever known to be true is a lie. Hey, Miguel. How do we know you haven't been compromised like 99% of podcasters, YouTubers, television pundits, and influencers? Well, you don't, Montressor. But I would say because the algorithms have censored me for years, I worry about paying bills at the end of the month like most middle-class peeps, and somehow I embrace the most threatening ideology to the establishment in history, it probably means I'm on the outside looking in. You are a smelly pirate hooker. If you don't believe me, go back to Hassan Piker, Ben Shapiro, Charlie Kirk, Vosh, or any of those smooth operators at Fox, CNN, MSNBC, who enjoy living off your souls and paychecks. The illusion of freedom will continue as long as it's profitable to continue the illusion. At the point where the illusion becomes too expensive to maintain, they will just take down the scenery. They will move the chairs and tables out of the way. And you will see the brick wall at the back of the theater. Did you know that the Nazis didn't invent eugenics? 
but imported the idea from the USA? Did you know that Hitler modeled his concentration camps off the British and Soviets? Did you know that Hitler was trying to copy the American government's racist style and public relations? Der Fuhrer was amused that America could enslave blacks, genocide Native Americans, brutally marginalize the Slavs, Irish, and Italians, exploit Chinese and Hispanic workers, and get away with it. The world never noticed. What's more, America could put on this happy face about being the land of the free and equality for everyone. Are we the baddies? Hitler thought this was one of the most excellent marketing campaigns ever, and he could mimic it in Germany to create his racially pure country. And did you know that after World War II, the Allies set up internment camps in Germany that killed hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians? No way! Ah, uh, but it's the price to pay to fight fascism. Say you who are Shapiro, Vosh, or Piker fans. Gee, then why didn't the Allies get rid of fascist dictators Stalin, Franco, or Salazarish? The last one ruled my home country of Portugal for decades after the war. What happened there? Why did my people and so many others across Europe, tens of millions, suffer and die unfairly? Oh yeah, America had to continue that marketing campaign of the land of the free while importing Nazis to a country where blacks still had to use separate water fountains. And Asians had to be bombed to kingdom come on distant shores. God damn, I love working on American soil, Dan. Ain't had this much fun since Woodward and Bernstein. What happened to the American dream? What happened to the American dream? It came true! You're looking at it. Uh, the true history. It's a red pill suppository up our rectums of reality, I tell ya. But the truth will set us free. And now an even bigger truth with our interview with the wonderful John Michael Greer. Perhaps we should start with how you're feeling? Not good. What's not good right now? Everything. Humor me with some specifics. How do we know if uh, we're in control? No, we're not just making the best of what comes at us and that's it. We're trying to constantly pick between two options. Like your two paintings in the waiting room. Or Coke and Pepsi. McDonald's or Burger King? Hyundai or Honda? Hmm. It's all part of the same blur, right? Just out of focus enough. It's the illusion of choice. And half of us can't even pick our own, our cable, the gas, electric, the water we drink, our health insurance. Even if we did, would it matter? Now, if our only option is Blue Cross or Blue Shield, what the f is the difference? In fact, aren't they, aren't they the same? No, man. 
Our choices are prepaid for us long time ago. I'm sorry you feel you have no control. This is the Aeon Byte interview. And with us, we have the pleasure of being joined, as always, by John Michael Greer, this time to discuss his latest book, The Ceremony of the Grail, Ancient Mysteries, Gnostic Heresies, and the Lost Rituals of Freemasonry. John, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you again for having me on again, yeah. And that tagline, I mean, you hit all the occult sweet spots right there. I mean, <laughs> you could retire now, or your copywriter. Oh, no, 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 no. I've got, I've got plenty of fun stuff in process. <laughs> you always do. I always enjoy your oh, yeah. books. And uh, as I was talking, the audience will love this because it's got all the right notes. So tell us, uh, uh, how, why did you decide to write this book? I think you talk about how this came out a little bit before this idea. Mm-hmm. Okay, basically, this this book was was kind of kind of spun off from my earlier title, The Secret of the Temple. Um, I was at that time doing a lot of research into um, into temples, into these very interesting pieces of folklore and tradition that connected um, temples of various of certain kinds to agricultural fertility, and ended up writing this book suggesting that there is an archaic folk technology that uses various natural energies to actually to improve agricultural yields. Very important in earlier societies, and frankly, not that unimportant now. Um, but in the process, I ended up doing a lot of study of the Grail legend because that ties into into the temple technology in certain ways, and that ended up spinning off and taking on a life of its own. And I, I did further reading. You know how you go down the rabbit hole, and more oh, yeah. stuff just comes out and comes <laughs> out. And eventually, I was looking at this, going, "Okay, there's more than enough for a book here." And so I started writing. <clears throat> that's that's often the way my nonfiction projects stay, you know, come into being. I don't I don't necessarily plan them in advance. I know I, I discover some kind of some kind of interesting question, some kind of odd little detail, and I go, hmm. If I start following these tracks, where will they lead? And it's usually someplace interesting, at least to me. The rabbit hole down the rabbit hole you go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Well, where, where do you think we should start? Because uh, I love your book because it's not really linear. We go mm-hmm. back and forward in time. We deal with this author. We deal with this symbolism. Mm-hmm. We, for the audience, we go back to the Bronze Age, and then we'll jump yeah, back to I medieval times. So exactly. where should we start? Um, probably the best place to start is with the Grail legends themselves. Everybody's heard about the Holy Grail. Most people have a really, a, a really incomplete and often an inaccurate idea of what the original Grail legends were about. They're not Christian. They're very emphatically not Christian. That was added in later. Um, and so there's, um, we, we have these, these strange legends that surface in, in the Middle Ages, in the 12th, in the 12th century. Um, the Crusades are underway. Knighthood is in flower. Um, lots of people going around Europe slaughtering each other in small groups. Um, and, and you have the you have the, the first wave of stories about this this obscure king back someplace in the past who, the, who everyone knows as Arthur. And the Arthurian legend was just in the process of being born. And out of the blue, you have starting to pop up in various corners of Europe stories about something called the Grail. 
what is the grail? That's actually one of the questions that that has to be asked. Depending on depending on which version of the grail story you're you're reading, the the grail seeker always has to ask the right question, and then you know everything everything happens and and the denouement is reached and so on. But so what is the grail? The word grail actually it it originally seems to have been a word for a serving dish. Um, gradal, gradal in in various medieval French dialects, um, the kind of dish you would serve, for example, a, a large fish on, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and exactly why that is the case is a really fascinating question. <laughs> but that was there. There was the Grail. It didn't become the Holy Grail until later. But there is the Grail, and. It, um, it shows up for the first of the surviving Grail stories, probably not the first of the lot, the first that was ever written, but the first surviving one is incomplete. It's by Chrétien uh, de Troyes, um, and he, he claimed, he said that he got the story from a book, which he was lent by one of his noble patrons. And it's all about this clueless young man named Percival. And Percival is raised by his widowed mother off in the woods, has no contact with knighthood, uh, decides to leave home and seek adventure, goes blundering around, uh, ends up at the court of King Arthur, and eventually ends up going out on, on the usual sort of knightly quest thing. And after various days, he comes to this mysterious castle. And he goes into the castle, and everyone, you know, everyone treats him hospitably, and he's, um, you know, they help him out of his armor and give him a bath, which after a long day riding a horse in full armor, you need. And you know, so he comes to the, um, to the to the dining hall, and there he sits next to this 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 king, the Fisher King, who he had previously seen fishing in the river. But um, you know, there's the Fisher King, and all of a sudden everything goes dead silent. And in that silence, this procession moves through. There's somebody carrying a spear from which blood runs in a rivulet down from the point. People are bringing, the other people in the procession have, have candles in candlesticks. And then finally comes a woman carrying the grail. Chrétien does not tell us what the grail is. It's just he, she's bringing the grail. This walks past in total silence. Now, Percival the whole time is going, what is going on here? But he had been told by his mother that he should not ask rude questions, so he keeps his mouth shut. Okay. So, he, the, the feast is served, he has, his, he has his dinner, he goes to bed for the night, he wakes up the next morning, and the castle is empty, completely deserted. There's the only living things in it are himself and his horse. So he goes down, he saddles his horse. He rides out. As soon as he's out, the drawbridge goes wham behind him. And that's that. And he, he, he goes riding off. And a little while later, he meets um, the ugliest woman in the world, who, who shows up fairly frequently in Grail Legend. And the ugliest woman in the world tells him that he is a complete, clueless numbskull. Because if he had <laughs> only asked what the, gra- what the Grail was and, how, and who did it serve and things like this, then the, the evil enchantment that was on the land would be lifted and all kinds of marvelous things would happen. And so he goes riding out to try to find his way back to the Grail Castle. But... <laughs> Um, <laughs> fat chance. So now that's where the story ends. We don't know anything else from Chrétien. Of course, you know, an incomplete story like that, even now, if somebody, you know, if, if, um, if, if Stephen King were to launch into a, a series and fall over dead, you know as well as I do, there'd be 13 different people lining up to write um, the, the other volumes in the series. Oh, yeah. Uh, of course, in, the, in those days, they didn't have copyright yet. So what happened is everyone just jumped on it. 
And so there were like three different writers who wrote these continuations, all of which eventually involve uh, Percival finding his way back to the castle and asking the question, da-da, everything's fine. <laughs> but so that's the basic Grail story. Now, later on, you get this Christian overlay, you get the insistence that it was the um, originally the dish that Jesus ate out of in the Last Supper. Later, it becomes the cup that he drank from the very one that he says, this is my blood, and so on. And and it all gets wrapped up in in, in, in Orthodox Christian theology and a lot of stuff about virginity. One must have virginity. The, the, you know, monks at that time were kind of obsessive about that. <laughs> but... Back, the further back you go, the further away you get from Christian orthodoxy, and the more you're in the presence of something very, very strange. Indeed, yeah. Even uh, you say, uh, you mentioned a woman carrying an artifact. It's not something mm. that uh, Catholicism would allow, right. so this goes back to the paganism. Oh, either to the pagans or to the Gnostics. Mm-hmm. Because one of the major things we know about about all of the organized Gnostic sects is that they gave much more respect to women and much more important places in their religious life to oh, women yeah. than any of the Orthodox, in, 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 than the Catholic or the Orthodox, or in fact, until quite recently, any other mainstream Christian church was willing to do. Um, the Cathars, I mean, the Cathars gave had had women on the same level as men in terms of becoming members of the priesthood, becoming perfecti, all this kind of stuff. So, and the and one of the things that makes this interesting, of course, is that the time and the place when this these legends got started, when we first encountered the Grail legends, is the same time and place that the Cathar Church was getting going in southern France. Yeah, and as you write. Uh... After the Cathars were exterminated, the Grail stories uh-huh. just sort of vanished from Europe. Exactly. People. St- that's one of the many weird things about the Grail. The Grail shows up. There's Clotin de Troyes with his version of it. There's um, Wolfram von Eschenbach giving a German version, which is is even weirder in some ways. But it's the same basic story. And it, but it has it has a lot of strange things in it. You have dozens of other people piling on, churning out Grail legends, and then the the Cathar Crusade happens. The Cathars are slaughtered en masse, um, and it stops dead silence about the Grail until centuries later, the Arthurian legends come back into vogue. This is the era of Sir Thomas Mallory, people like that. We're in the, we're in the 15th century here. And of course, because they're, they're digging through old books and say, oh, here's an interesting story. And so Mallory, of course, he, he took the, the later Christianized version, and that's where we get Galahad. God help us. The pla- oh, Galahad. The thing is, I, I have to say, Christian mystics adore Galahad. I know some Christian mystics. They love them, Galahad. Every, everyone else finds him an un- just an unbearable prig. You know, I am virtuous, and therefore I have the strength of a thousand. Okay. I mean, he's just a plaster saint in armor. He's, he's boring. Well, he made, and, that, he but, made that America song, The Tropic of it, Sir Galahad. Well, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Good heavens. Yeah. I mean, America wrote some pretty incomprehensible songs. But that, <laughs> and that, that one, of. you know, cause never was the reason for the <laughs> evening of the Tropic of Sir Galahad. What the ringtail rambling? Are they trying to say there? Maybe they're secret cathars. <laughs> or something like that. Or maybe they're just using a lot of weed. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the latter, yeah. <laughs> Probably the latter. But yeah, maybe it's a secret Cathar symbolism. I don't know. Um, 
Yeah, and it's interesting too because, um, for example, yeah, you've got the Cathar, or we should probably tell the audience too when dealing with these ancient stories and Grail stories, mm-hmm. there's different levels, right, John? Mm-hmm. You can't just take it at face value. You've got to get oh, yourself no, no, in no, a no. different mindset. Oh yeah, yeah. One of the things, one of the things that we've lost in modern times is to sense that. Um, the important stories, the stories that matter, mean more than one thing, and they mean it on more than one level. In back in the Middle Ages, um, everybody knew that. Everyone knew that any story out of the Bible, for example, had at least four meanings. It had the literal meaning. It had a moral meaning. It had a religious meaning. It had a mystical meaning. Each of these are independent. Um, the Muslims actually take it even further. They insist that every verse in the Quran has seven meanings. You've you got to ask them to explain it. I, it's beyond me. <laughs> but but the, the Grail legends especially, there's just layer after layer of complexity woven into them. And especially the older ones. You get into the later Christianized ones, and you, the secret meaning is always <clears throat> ordinary Christian theology. And, which is fine if if you're a mainstream Christian. That's a great. It's, it's great. You can read. You can read some. You know, so you're the adventures of Sir Galahad, and that will you know um, strengthen your Christian faith, and that's great. But those of us who are not mainstream Christians might be interested a little more in some of the older stuff because there's a lot of meat there. Indeed, there is. Uh, so, what are some of the commonalities that we have in these Grail stories? Before we start getting into the secrets okay. behind them, and for example, <laughs> there's also uh, some thought the Grail was a stone that came mm-hmm. from Earth from a ba- Lucifer losing a battle or something like that. Yeah, but, yeah, that's that. I mentioned Wolfram von Eschenbach, his his version, Parzival. Um, the Grail is an emerald. Right. It is not a cup. It is not a dish. It is it is an emerald. It is an emerald that he calls he gives a name Lapsit Exilas, which is a it's a lot of people did this in those days. It's a complex Latin pun. Um Lapsit is kind of, is is um he or she or it fell. Okay? Ex ilas, Latin, from among them. And it's ilas meaning from among them. It's, it really puts that emphasis on it. Who, who was it? You know, think of your Gnosticism. Who was it that fell from among them? It's Sophia. Right. It's the, 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 the eon Sophia who fell out of the realm of the eons, descended into this world. So, you know, that's, she's the grail. And that's one of the things that, um, that, that Wolfram was communicating in that. And there are various other, there are various other changes you can ring on that lapsitic zillas. It's, it's kind of clever. Um, yeah, so sometimes it's a stone. Sometimes, yeah, it's an emerald from the crown of Lucifer that was knocked out when he was duking out with, my, with the Archangel Michael <laughs> and came tumbling down to earth, and here it is. Um, it's, what is the grail? One of the French legends, I forget which, which specific one it is, says the grail has five different forms. And, of course, it doesn't tell you what they are. <laughs> it's <just laughs> dropping these things. And, but in terms of common things, what we have in, in the older legends, in the ones that have not have been, had a layer of, of plaster put, of religious plaster put over them, and Sir Galahad brought in to, you know, to do his thing, um, what you have is specifically, there's the grail, which is a mysterious object carried in a, process, a procession by a woman. You have the wasteland. The idea is that the the territory around the Grail Castle is desolate. 
no tree grows, no water flows in the rivers. It's a, it's a vision of total ecological catastrophe. You have the Fisher King, who is wounded. Um, the polite version says that he was wounded in the thighs. The impolite version says he was wounded in the genitals. Um, and he is, he is unable to die and unable to be healed until somebody asks the right question. You have that whole theme of the question, which has to be asked. That's really something unique in the world's myths and legends. Usually, it's somebody has to give the right answer. But in this case, you have to ask the right question. And then you have, let's see, that, those, are, those are core things. There's the ugliest woman in the world who, who knows everything. Um, she shows up constantly. <laughs> and um, she's great. Um, she ends up, she, um, she is the, the major source of information for, for, um, for Percival or Parzival, you know, whatever form he takes, but she's always around. She knows everything. She is, um, screamingly ugly, but she's a nice person and she will help you. <laughs> and so, so if you, if this launches you on a quest and you find yourself sitting down next to a really ugly woman who starts, who starts giving you information, listen closely and be very polite and friendly she has you know she will help you um just in, in case this starts an egrail quest i would not be infinitely surprised if it does <laughs> so those are the those are the core elements of the grail legend as it as as we have it before it started being as i say plastered over with theology those are the things that seem to have been in the original version whenever that was written whoever wrote it um and yeah, and the, that's that's kind of our starting place. And from there, you know that it, that was that was. It's not quite fair to say that that was my starting place, although it was just one step removed from it. My starting place was Jesse Weston, who I talk about in, this, in right. the book. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about her. Okay, she, she's Very kind cool of pretty. Yeah, oh yeah. You really wonder why it is that so, there there are certain figures, certain certain women, you know who were erased from modern intellectual history, you'd think that the feminists would be all over Jesse Weston. Because <laughs> yeah. she, no, seriously, she was, a, she was a pioneer woman scholar in a field that had been completely dominated by men up to her time. She was a scholar of medieval legends. She, um, she was the, um, the daughter of a tea merchant. She had a little bit of money so she could support herself, didn't have to get a university position, but she was one of the first women in Europe to get a doctorate degree in folklore studies. And then started making, started publishing in the field, carried on lively debates with various rivals, never let anybody put her down just because she was female. But the pro there, are, there are two problems here. The first problem is that she was, um, you know, she was into folklore studies. She was studying these old medieval traditions, which are perhaps not fashionable enough these days. And the other problem is where they led her. And we'll get to that. Yeah, even as you write in your book, it's a curious thing about the 19th century, John. Even mm -hmm. I, and I agree with you, Blavatsky still does not get the dues that she deserved. Oh, yeah. I mean, that woman changed history, but that, she's that still sort of whitewashed yeah. from. Yeah. You know. Yeah. There were the, the, one of the things that, that's really fascinating to look, Blavatsky was one, was one of the most influential of them all, but there was a whole flurry of women who made an immense impact on cultural history at the time. But because they did it by way of occultism, by way of alternative spirituality, um, they've been removed, they've been edited out of, of popular memory. And the thing is, they did that because that was one of the few places where women could really make a splash in the world. 
You know, if Blavatsky had gone into most other professions, you know, everyone would say, oh, well, she's just a woman. But, you know, she shows up and uh, founds a Theosophical Society. And, uh, I mean, there, there were two women, two women at the core of the Theosophical Society when it was founded in New York in 1875. There was her and there was Emma Harding Britton. And both of them were major cultural figures at the time. And they, 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 they shook the world. And yet nobody wants to talk about it because they were occultists. Can't have that. We all have to be on. We all have to pretend that that, you know, that everyone's been nice and rational, and and these these, <laughs> these horrid occultists. Ooh, <laughs> um, like oh, back in my misspent childhood, the movie, the original movie version of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, where the the, the there's the Duchess of Bulgaria who hates children, and nothing censored a conniption fits more than the thought of oh, the children. They're horrid. I get the impression that a lot of people in in the sort of chattering classes these days are that way about occultists. If we show up, it's ah. Oh yeah, yeah, no doubt. They they don't want that woo woo stuff. And like yeah, like you said, uh, there are autobiographies of Gandhi that will not even mention Blavatsky. It's like without yeah, Blavatsky, there's no Gandhi. <laughs> yeah, which is crazy. In fact, the Theosophicals. Oh, in, in go in go to India. And they're very up on that. They're very, they're very, they, they talk a lot about the extent to which the Theosophical Society generally helped along the struggle for India's independence. But you get out into the into Europe or into America, and oh, not a word about that. We can't. We can't. You know, mention. It's it's really stupid. <laughs> it is really stupid. Yeah, the more things just haven't changed as much as people want to say. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's the it's the mythology of progress again. We you know we go around in circles and insist that if we just go around in circles even faster, that's progress. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lord have mercy. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. So tell us what was uh, again. You write about Jesse Weston. She was mm -hmm. very innovative, kind of great mm -hmm. ideas. Rubbed shoulders with some of the great poets, historians, occultists mm -hmm. of the late nineteenth, oh, twentieth yeah. century. But what yeah. was her innovation when it came to the Grail or her great discovery? The crucial thing that she figured out. She, she, of course, she read all of the Grail legends. She read them in medieval French, medieval German. She was fluent in all, in all kinds of old languages. And so she was reading these things and comparing them to some of the folklore studies that were coming out in her time and said, good heavens, what we're seeing here in the Grail legend is an account of an initiation ritual. Okay, you bring the candidate to the uh, you know, to the ceremony, and you, you have this procession in front of them. You have some things happen. They have to answer the question right. If they don't, they fail the, the initiation, and, you know, they wake up the next morning in an empty castle. If they <laughs> answer the question right, the initiation goes through. It has all the features of a, of a ritual. So she proposed that um, first in some papers and then in a book called The Quest of the Holy Grail and finally in her, her last book from Ritual to Romance, arguing that this was an initiation ritual that had um, the, 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 grail, the grail legends were a, a slightly garbled account of an initiation ritual that had once beyond, belonged to the ancient pagan mysteries. 
and that had later been picked up by one of the Gnostic sects and transmitted by them to Europe. So that was her theory. And the starting point to my investigation was looking at that and going, okay, was she right? We know a lot more about the Gnostics now than we do, than, than they did oh, in yeah. her time. We know a lot more about the ancient mysteries than they did in her time. So, I mean, we've got the Nagamatic literature, among other things. We've got a lot, of a lot of further material. How does her theory stack up when you, if you just take it seriously, if you just said, okay, here's a hypothesis. How does the evidence sort out? My argument is she was right. And my argument is there, the, the argument of my book is that she caught something that almost nobody else did, and that she had she identified um, the way in which an archaic mystery initiation, equivalent to the Eleusinian mysteries, was actually passed on into medieval Europe, and as she points out, was actually revived and reenacted in her own time. In her own time, huh? In her own time. That's That was the thing she leaked in um, in from ritual to romance, that she was in contact with a group of people who still had the ritual and were performing it. Now, she did not say, and I've taken part in it, but I'm almost certain she did. She gave, um, in one of the appendices of my book is a, an essay that she wrote in the form of a story, which she published in an occult magazine at the time, giving her conception of the grail, um, of the grail initiation. And it had never been published since that one one appearance in the 19 teens nobody had published it again as far as i could tell nobody even cited it again she referenced it in one of her books i chased it down the internet is useful <laughs> i was able to i was i was able to score a scanned copy of wow. that issue of quest of the, the quest magazine and go flipping through that and go wow and so you know since it has not it's not exactly easy to find these days i you know um, copy a scan of the whole thing and, and um, OCR'd it and put it in as an appendix. So anyone who's interested, you've got her text now. And it's it's very clear from you know from the details and from the way she talks about it, even though she didn't say so in so many words, it's clear that she knew that initiation from having experienced it. And so one of the things that I try to explore in the book is, okay, how did this happen and who was involved? Yeah, I think I think the audience should know how stunning this is because mm -hmm. one thing that people have tried to to figure out is these amazing ancient mysteries that could transform mm -hmm. people. That could uh, you could see into the other world. You could lose your mm -hmm. fear of death. That created mm -hmm. uh, philosophers and kings. I mean, if you want to talk about something objectively good, you mm -hmm. have these mysteries, but they were so secretive. People are like, well, you know, ah, damn Christians, they lost it. But as you say, this was smuggled through the mm -hmm. Gnostics, through the Gnostics mm -hmm. in the Middle Ages, and then mm -hmm. given to other secret societies later on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, basically. It survived the, the destruction of the Cathars, even. Yeah, yeah. There, um, as far as I can tell, and this is, this is hypothetical, this is tentative, I'm piecing, you know, I'm piecing together scraps of data. Um, the, a particular Gnostic sect called the Nassines, who were, you know, Gnostics kind of fell along a long spectrum from the sort of hardcore Johannite to the world is evil. <laughs> we are caught in this black iron prison and we must That's flee. <laughs> Where's the escape hatch? And then you have all the way to the other side where you have the Nassines who are saying, okay, you know, the, this world is where we are. 
Right. This world it is, is what where it we is. are incarnated. It is what it is. And yes, it is our destiny ultimately to transcend it, but we have things to do first. And the Nazis, we, we, have, we have some chunks of a Nazi document, which um, the, the silly Christians, um, one of the Christian heresy hunters, included large chunks of this Nazi document in the process of denouncing it. And so Jesse Weston, with the help of GRS Mead, um, peeled out the use, you know, what what was actually Nazi in this. And okay, so the Nazis are saying that the Greek, the, the Greek classical mysteries, the Eleusinian mysteries, the mysteries of the Great Mother and Attis and so on, that these are actually the first step in a spiritual progression. Mm-hmm. Right. That they treated the the the, the myth, these Greek mysteries as the as the first gate. They treated ordinary Christian sacraments as the second gate, and their own spiritual practices as the third gate. So it was this really interesting syncretistic system. And then that proceeded to be spread with Gnostic groups through various corners of Europe. Um, there, it is by no means impossible, given where the Grail, show, the Grail legends showed up um, and who had connections to what, it is by no means impossible the Knights Templar had it and were practicing it. Um, there are some details of, this is something I want to expand on in a future book, there's some details that have come out about the charges against the Templars and about some of the things that they were, they were thought to have done or known to have done that suggest that um, they had something going on. They were perfectly willing to take part in ordinary Christian um, ritual, but it wasn't the only thing they were doing. And so there again, you have the Nassim, you know, first, first gate, second gate, third gate structure. And but it certainly was around in various parts of France, various parts of Britain, various parts of Scotland, and um, where in all of those, of course, the Templars had a large presence. And it managed to survive the destruction of the Templar Order. It described it survived the, the destruction of the Cathars, probably in little local, isolated groups. And eventually, eventually, as a lot of Scottish initiatory traditions found their way south into England again. Um, and you know there are some there are some elements of certain old Masonic rituals that suggest that some of the people who were familiar with the, who who were familiar with those or who helped write those were familiar with the Grail ritual. And then the trail kind of tapers off for a while, but apparently a written version of that came into the hands of um, people in Victorian England. And I'm pretty sure, based on material in some of his writings, that William Morris, the guy who invented modern fantasy fiction, the guy who first thought of writing an adventure story involving magic and swordplay in a world that doesn't exist, um, that he was involved in, its, in, in the rediscovery of it. He certainly put some very, very significant stuff into his, the biggest of his fantasy novels that seemed to have come straight from that. And from him to the Theosophists to G.R.S. Mead and the circle around him where it was apparently being practiced when Jesse Weston wrote about it, that's a need. There, there were all kinds, of, all kinds of direct connections there. So that's that's kind of the kind of the story by the the story of how this ritual, going through many changes in the process, of course, came down through the years and survived in scraps in, in enough enough pieces that I was able to reconstruct it and put a, you know a, a detailed script and instructions performance in the book. Yes, for the audience, uh, John has it right there. I've read it. So we might have something as close as these uh, seemingly lost ancient mysteries mm-hmm. to really uh, mm-hmm. get, get an encounter with God. And it's interesting, too, John, because, yeah, 
we have the reconstruction of the Nascenes by Hippolytus. And you can say, well, mm-hmm. Hippolytus yeah. was, you know, a heresy hunter. But Hippolytus was, he wrote about the Druids, the Hindus. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is recording things, I feel, as neutral as possible because he wants his evidence for the church. And oh, yeah. he even well, says yeah. that the Nascene ritual is a dead ringer to the Eleusinian mysteries. Mm-hmm. That they are tapping. Oh, yeah. They're just borrowing stuff from them. The, the really annoying thing about, about Hippolytus is that he actually, in, in this book on, on heresies, his, his big heresy hunting handbook, he included a text of the Eleusinian Mysteries, he included a text of the Mysteries of Attis. Those chapters are gone. Uh. <laughs> and the summary of the material in the final chapter, where he sums everything up, those have been deleted too. Uh. Somebody decided it was too dangerous. Uh, now, one never knows. They're, they're, all the time, they're finding um, you know old manus, old Greek manuscripts that were overwritten, scraped and overwritten, and they can read them with modern technology. So I have hopes that someday, you know, somebody's going to be doodling along, you know, scanning through old parchment and say, "Hold it, hold it, Hippolytus, <laughs> Book One, whoa!" And, we and, got you know, it. and we'll we got it. But one of the things. One of the things that's very interesting about this, about the the ritual as I was able to reconstruct it, which is an attempt to reconstruct the ritual as it was practiced in the 1920s, I should say, what was being done in the in the 1700s, what was being done in the 700s, what was being done back further still, I don't have enough data yet to really do that, but. When the people who say that, and and this includes many Freemasons, by the way, that Freemasonry has the shell of a valid mystery system, they just don't know how to use it. They don't know what to do with it. Um, If I'm right, those people are correct. They actually have the the remnants of an of an old mystery initiation, but. It's mostly being used as a decoration for a social club these days. <laughs> yeah, you might have to fly and talk to some Indians or Yazidi for the true <laughs> one for this. Yeah, exactly. One. You know, no, you've got to you you've got to take the, you've got to take the form and figure out okay what filled it. You know, it's a, it's as though we have this marvelous this marvelous box, and and there's this little opening that looks like a keyhole, but nobody has the key. Right. And so they parade around the box, and uh, you know, but. <laughs> quite possibly the box can be opened so yeah yeah and it's interesting too because uh, for the audience the nascene second century the snake gnostics too they were mm-hmm. very syncretic you have these rituals where you got jesus and hermes and addis and aphrodite i mean they're just like throwing everything in the kitchen sink but it's very <laughs> structured and you're going through these stargates and it is wild but oh, it's they them- yeah they themselves said uh gnosis is a cup right yeah. yeah, they include that. That that's in in the in the Nicene document that Hippolytus gives. They talk about gnosis as a cup, and then you have in one of the one of the treatises of the Corpus Hermeticum, you have Hermes Trismegistus talking about here is the crater, the the drinking cup of wisdom. Years ago, um, oh, the Kahanes, a husband wife team of scholars, pointed out that. This this suggests very strongly that there's a hermetic background to the Grail legend. And I think they're quite right. Oh, yeah. We know from the Naga, from the Nagamati finds that the Gnostics read hermetic literature. Oh, yeah. They were very familiar with it. So you know you have this. It's it's very much like the the sort of scene we have now, where you know different whether it's the Golden Dawnies and the Martinists and all the different groups of occultists, they're actually all talking to each other. <laughs> 
and they're and they're reading each other's books and so on. The Rosicrucians are over here, and the Templars are over there. Or in this case, the the Nazis are here, and the Johannites are here, and the Hermetic, the Hermetists are here, and you've got well, the, ancient the Alexandria. They were just rubbing shoulders. Look exactly. out the window. Yeah. Hey, it's a Hermeticist. Hey, it's a Christian it's a Hermeticist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, they're all going to the same lectures. <laughs> They're, they're yeah. hanging out at the same wine Let's bar. Let's go hang out with Plotinus. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh, for a time machine. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Woo. And a better knowledge of Greek than I've got. <laughs> <laughs> and a fun library, that's for sure. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So I want to make sure the audience gets it. So that the Nazis, Gnostics, and of course, people have said that yes, the Gnostics were always these smugglers. I mean, they. It go like Margaret Barker said, they were smuggling stuff from the days of Ashira when it was more when you know Israel was more animistic and experienced oh, yeah. and they were just smuggling the stuff throughout history, the Greco Roman yeah. times, smuggled yeah. it through the Manichaean Bogomils and Cathars, and it just mm-hmm. keeps getting smuggled. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 what you do. That happens now. I mean bootleg copies of old occult uh, occult texts are they're spread from occultist to occultist right now. Um, and sometimes we can even get them published and, and you know, get some royalties from that. I mean, that's part of what I do. And so, yeah, it's this, this constant looking around and saying, okay, what can we do with it? Where are some interesting teachings? Where are some practices we can use? And yeah, so this stuff, this this stuff continues to, you know, the spice must flow. <laughs> it always does. <laughs> it always does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can't suppress the stuff. But now for this might, again, for the audience who's still thinking in linear terms in one level, here comes the little twist that, yes, we have the grail is the ultimate gnosis, the experience of the divine, the inner mm-hmm. uh, revelation, the connection with the all, the animus, we're all one, all that, whatever mysteries that we mm-hmm. can't really describe. But it's not just that, right, John? This We're also talking about a technology. In other words, as you write, the church wasn't just worried about the theology that this stuff had, but they were worried about the technology, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, the, the thing you have to remember is, that, for example, the temple. The, I mean, there were very, there were various levels of technology. In effect, I mean, what is ritual but a technology? Um, it's a technology of the transformation of consciousness. But the great problem that has been faced by people who've been trying to preserve some of these technologies in the, um, you know, during the the last two thousand years, is that you have these literal-minded people who end up in charge of churches who are convinced that if it has if it's framed in religious terms it must be a religious thing and therefore if it's the wrong religion you should burn it and preferably the people who are who are involved in it should be you should burn those too so they did now the interesting thing is that the temple technology the specific one i talked about earlier that that enhances agricultural fertility that was actually picked up by monastic orders and spread through medieval Europe. You have a lot of medieval churches that are made according to the, the um, necessary things to, to make the temple technology work. And so you have, and in fact, you have um, ever, plenty of signs of a period between about 1200 and about 1500, where large parts of Europe that you can't farm today were, were thriving. You, in, in, you go to England these days, in some of the, some of the northern and, and western parts of England, you will find areas that have not had anybody living in them for, for 400 years. Wow. 
and there are these ruined churches and villages. And if you look back in the medieval records, this was a thriving little town, and there were fields, and there were you know livestock, and and you know a hundred people living here. And now, now you can't grow anything there. Something happened. That was one of the things I talked about in the um, you know in, in my book in my book The Secret of the Temple. And so my hypothesis that what happened was that this this temple technology was brought back from the Holy Land by the Templars. They spread it through their various because the Templars owned a lot of real estate in, in Western Europe during their heyday. They donated chunks of land, and they would of course use the land. Um, they'd, they'd have their own their own farmers and their own um, their own superintendents and so on who would manage it because that was how they raised money to pay for all that castle building in the, in the Holy Land. So you know you'd have all of these um, all of these farms that were using were setting up little Templar churches using the temple technology, and when the Templars were broken up after 1314, a lot of of Templar members, ordinary rank-and-file Templars, were allowed to join other monasteries. They weren't simple. They weren't all burned at the stake. There were hundreds of them who were. But in a lot of countries, they weren't. They weren't all just rounded up and burnt. They were. They they joined the 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 Benedictines or they joined the Cistercians. They joined one of the other, um, one of the other monastic groups, and they took that with them. And so you have um, in the 1300s and the 1400s, you have this explosion of agricultural productivity in Europe. Um, you have this, which you know, drove the the cultural the cultural um, well the Renaissance came out of that of great cultural flowering because you had plenty of food, you had plenty of resources, and then things got difficult. Of course, there was the Black Death, little problems like that. You had the Reformation, and across all of the Protestant countries, you get rid of the monasteries and you know um, sell off the property and burn the libraries, and in the Catholic countries, you have the Council of Trent, you have, we must be absolutely orthodox in anything that doesn't follow. Um, the absolutely narrowest definition of church policy must be abolished. And so, that was the end of the temple technology in Europe, because whether you're in the Protestant world or in the Catholic world, it was no longer possible to practice it. And so, there were various groups, including the, or the earliest Freemasons, who tried to preserve the technology. But they were, they were unsuccessful. Um, and so here we are. Here we are. Yeah, as, and of course I brought up uh, Ashira, and she's associated with the groves. You write mm-hmm. about the groves of Demeter and others. So this mm-hmm. technology was associated with the groves, and it was something oh, yeah. to keep the land uh, healthy. And mm-hmm. it's interesting because, yeah, as we read in the Hebrew Bible, uh, some people destroyed, tried to destroy the Ashira technology. Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, they you you had this constant problem with right. people who were literalists and who could not see that. I mean, in in a in a non scientific society, how were you going to talk about something like the temple technology? You have these things. You build a, a stone structure this way, or a wooden structure. You can do it either way. You build it according to sacred to certain kinds of patterns of sacred geometry. You do certain things in it, and the crops flourish. If you're in a non-scientific society, this is obviously a religious process. The gods are happy because you do this. <laughs> and so, you know, but unfortunately then when you get an intolerant religion that says your gods are evil and wrong and we, we must you know, <laughs> slaughter you and burn your temple, and hold it, what happened to the agricultural productivity? Well, yeah, it's okay, it must be God's will. And so a lot of stuff got lost that way. 
and, and, and the, the groves actually, because it wasn't just the narrowly defined technology. The, um, the fact is that people in ancient times knew that if you plant groves of trees in certain places, it stops soil erosion. Again, we think of that as a simple, practical, scientific thing. In a non-scientific society, they're going to look at that and say, oh, there's a tree goddess who has to be kept happy or she will make us starve. Right. Okay, no problem. So you get, you, know, you get wise priests and priestesses who can figure out, okay, if we put a grove here, then Asherah will be happy. Okay, let's put a grove there. And the grove goes there, soil erosion stops. Clearly, Asherah is happy. <laughs> you know, and so you can, t- so or Demeter or whoever the local or the local fertility goddess happens to be. It's it's all very straightforward, and and it ties into religious and spiritual experience too. It's not that it was just a way of keeping of you know keeping the soil erosion from happening, but but it had that dimension, and so yeah, we the, the and it was syncretist groups like the Nazis who could see past the intolerance, see past the, well, they're the wrong, they worship the wrong God and they should worship the right God and they should like burn their groves and starve to death <laughs> because that's holy. <laughs> um, they, the, the Nazians could see past that. The Nazians could say, okay, these people understand the divine in this way and that's fine because, of course, from a Gnostic standpoint, the, the, the divine is beyond human comprehension anyway. So all we have are symbols. Yeah, so this so this is why this technology uh, hidden or in in the Grail stories mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. means is well, it tells us why there's so much uh, ecological damage in these stories of the Grail. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like something's mm-hmm. gonna go wrong if you don't yeah. do this. If you don't do this, something's gonna go wrong. One of the other things that I that I I discovered while I was doing the research is that. You know, there are several. There, there, recently, scholars have found that um, there are some folk tales, some legends that actually seem to date back all the way to the early Bronze Age, back to like 2000 BC. Um, there are accounts of the building of Stonehenge that sound suspiciously like a dim memory of what actually happened. The stones are not being raised by magic; they're being raised by machines. Wow! Or you have, or you have uh, one that I found out just fairly recently. There are legends from the islands uh, north and west of Scotland that describe the coastline what it, as it was before the oceans rose at the end of the last ice age, and they get the details right. Wow. So, so people are telling stories knowing that 10,000 years ago, this coastline was shaped differently. So clearly there's stuff being passed on for a very long time. And so you can look back and see, okay, when was the last time that... Um, England, let's say, went through that kind of total subsistence collapse where they where they damaged the ecosystem. Well, it actually was um, right around the early Bronze Age. There was basically a dark age, and so that's that's one of the things that feeds into the Grail legend. One of the, in particular, the 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 elucidation. One of the strangers of the Grail legend seems to be talking about the end of that early, of the early Bronze Age civilization civilization that built. Stonehenge as we know it, that raised the big sarsen stones and the trilithons. Um, and the collapse of that into a dark age caused by subsistence crisis and starvation because they messed over the agriculture. And, you know, that you have this, this dim folk memory going back a very long ways. Yeah, John, have you ever 
I don't know if you ever, well, when we had our last interview, I still have that image of you throwing out your TV in 1980 or around that time. Like, <laughs> I don't need it. My life's much better now. And I'm exactly. sure it, but uh, oh, yeah. I don't know if we ever seen John Borman's Excalibur 1981. No, uh, I didn't see that. However, I know a lot of people are into it. Yeah, and and it's amazing because it most people don't know it had the cast included Ellen Mirren, Liam Nielsen, Patrick Stewart, Ciaran Hins, Gabriel Byrne. It was just full of these actors that would become very famous. But mm-hmm. as a kid watching it, thirteen, and there was this mm-hmm. scene where Arthur is sick and they have to get the Holy Grail, and for some reason I was Catholic, and of course the land is dying because Arthur is sick, and I'm like, that makes Mm -hmm. no sense at all, and then they bring him the grail, he drinks from the grail, and he walks out in his horse, and suddenly the land is alive and healthy, so John Mm -hmm. Borman knew this thing, because the king was the land. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's something you find in a lot of the old Celtic traditions, where the idea is that you have the king is the focal point for these for the energies of the land. The king is married to the land, and has and has this this complicated relationship. And his, you know, to the extent that he, if he is sick, if he is weak, if he is mutilated in battle or something like that, he has he is no longer the king, and you have to get somebody who's strong and healthy again. So yeah, they're the complicated stuff. Well, this has been a great chat for the audience. Please get the ceremony of the grill. And uh, uh, this can be found in all places. Maybe you can mention your website or blog. I'll have it in the show notes. But for those listening in audio. Yeah, you can always go to um, www.ecosophia.net, E-C-O-S-O-P-H-I-A.net, or um, ecosophia.dreamwith.org. I also have a Dreamwith journal. Um, if you like shopping on Bookshop, um, I uh, JMG at book, um, dot bookshop.com is my is my online book presence. So you can get it. Awesome. Well, I highly recommend it because uh, we just scratched the surface and there's a lot more wonderful gnosis in this book for your own gnosis. Well, John, as always, it is truly an honor and a pleasure and a lot of fun to having you on on Aeon Bite. Thank you. Thank you. I always enjoy being on. Thank you. And there you have it, you shining crazy diamonds. John is the Gnosis Bomb, as always. In our second part, we'll get deeper into King Arthur, including what's up with Mordred and the real identity of Merlin. John will talk about magic relics and astrology. He'll blow you away with the truth behind the myth of Hiram Abiff and blow you away as he gives us some details on the Gnostic Grail ritual at the end of his book. And we'll finish with John giving us some political predictions and the news is not good. So please become a member for the full Grail Quest. It's only $6.99 a month for AB Prime or $4.99 at Red Circle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. You'll get access to my private Facebook group and Discord channel for AB Prime members and higher level Patreons. If you find value in this content, please help grow this Red Bill Cafeteria. Your help can be in the form of some shekel donations on Stripe or the US Mail. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to leave a tip 
or you can tip on any YouTube show. There's always the merch store and wish list. And consider the Finding Hermes program, where we have exclusive meetings and presentations every month, with many past guests hanging out there for high-octane gnosis. If you need any help with these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.